Welcome back to the show. I'm Ryan Gatenby, and time for my next guest, who is a New York Times bestselling author. His newest book, part of the Rick Riordan Presents series, it is part of the Outlaw Saints duology. It's Last Canto of the Dead. It is now available where books are sold, and we are going to visit with Daniel Jose Older. And Daniel, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. How are you? How are things going where you are? I'm doing great. I'm very excited. I've been uh, talking to people about this book all day and getting excited for the release, and here we are. Now, is it um, is it ever anticlimactic that there's so you know you put your your heart and soul into this book, you work on it, you turn it in, you edit, you're promoting it, and then at some point it no longer yep. belongs to you, but it belongs to everybody. That's exactly it. It's a, it's actually a really intense experience to just let that go because <laughs> you really have to, and you have to. I'm, this is my nineteenth book, if you can believe it, and it's always it's always a different process writing it, and it's always a different process learning to let it go. Um, but it's what we love doing. I think it was uh, Bruce Springsteen talking about singing the same song so many times, and at some point you have to say, sing the song for yourself and the audience, but don't let the song sing you. And I think that was kind of deep. Mm, I love that. I love that. That's right. I mean, the great thing, though, and I think songwriters and singers know this, too, is that it, it does take on a life of its own, and you see your readers and your audience, you know, take it on. Right. And if you're lucky, you see, you know, fan art and, and their excitement and their, you know, their thoughts about it. And that's so inspiring in, in terms of, you know, creating the next work. Um, Last Canto of the Dead is the new book. Can you share with us a little bit uh, what it's about? Yeah, so let me start with the last year, the first book in this series came out. It's called Ballad and Dagger. And basically, we meet 16-year-old piano prodigy Matteo Matisse, who has to step into his newfound healing powers when an ancient evil rises in his community from the shadowy history of their magical lost island. And the girl he has a crush on murders somebody right in front of his face. Ooh. So there's a lot going on. <laughs> and now in, in book two, Last Count of the Dead, uh, we get to see that magical island. Half of the book takes place there and half of it takes place in Brooklyn. And it's really a love story between Mateo and this girl, Chela, and their interconnected lives. Man, I mean, the girl I had a crush on just teased other girls till they developed eating disorders. But this girl <laughs> murdered somebody. That's insane. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's complicated. Look, adolescence is complicated. So, uh, and you know, she's she's basically connected to an assassin god, and he's connected to this healing god. So they're sort of star-crossed, and they have to figure out a way to work together and find out if their love is going to work. The assassin god sounds totally frightening. I mean, God of the Old Testament is pretty angry, but an assassin god has to be just <laughs> very frightening. <laughs> It's a complex world. You can tell I had a lot of fun coming up yeah. with this mythology and all the magic in it. And there's lots of monsters. I'm a monster kid. I love monsters. And so it's it's just full of magic and monsters. But it's in Brooklyn. Yeah. Now, are you from Brooklyn? Is that why it's set in Brooklyn? So I'm not from uh, I'm from Boston originally. I okay. lived in Brooklyn for 14 years. And uh, I just love that place dearly. Uh, I, for 10 of those years, I was a paramedic. So I was running the streets in an ambulance, um, wow. you know, just seeing every side of the city. Yeah, you learn about, you know, you're in the, literally in the sewers, in the, in the train tunnels, you're in the high rises, in the governor's mansion, and wherever you might be, 
and certainly in hospitals and, you know, across the board courts. So you just learn so much about a city and a city like Brooklyn, I find as a writer really does have so many stories and so many songs that it's always telling you as you walk the streets. And so this is really, these stories are really a tribute to that. See, now some people would think that's an odd career path, paramedic to author, but hey, having spent that time, as you said, 10 years, you, you, that knowing that much about the city, every details that, that really has to uh, be great for informing your writing. Oh, absolutely. And, and because the other thing you learn about is humanity. You see, you know, humanity at its best and worst. You see people at the very end of their lives, at the very beginning of their lives. And most importantly, you see people in crisis. And what that might mean for each person is very different. You know, you have people that call 911 because they have an earache or because, you know, they've, they've had leg pain for 20 years. But that's a crisis for them. And you have to figure out how to manage that with them with the skills that you have. And then you have people that have been shot or are dying of an asthma attack and the whole range in between. As writers, we're always writing about crisis. The whole crux, the whole heart of story is change. And something is, there's a turning point. And so it's, it's always informed by that, that work that I did as a paramedic healing people. So you know the city, and you kind of have the city as an extra character. And I, I love that when you can pick up the vibe uh, on where a story is set and go right. with it. And I think sometimes people get hung up like, you know, there are several TV shows that film in Chicago and people get so upset, like those streets right. don't interconnect. I'm like, that doesn't matter. It's, <laughs> it's the, it's the story and the feeling. Exactly. Exactly. That's what you set out to capture as a writer. I mean, as someone who lived in Brooklyn for a long time, I of course try to make sure all the streets do connect, but yeah. they don't always. And that's what it is. But really the truth is exactly what you said. Uh, places are made up of people. And people bring with them, you know, their cultures, their demons, their saints, everything else, their music. And that's what feels alive about each city and it feels different about each city. And specifically, you know, in Brooklyn, this is a corner of Brooklyn that's coming up on Queens around East New York that I've particularly worked in on the ambulance. And it, it, it is so alive. And there are so many cultures like smashed together in there and they bring all of their, their love and their culture and their life. And that's what I needed to capture to really make this feel real and lived in. You've got your protagonists, and then you've got uh, healers and destroyers and creators. What is it like to have such a diverse group of characters kind of living in your head for a while as you're writing this? Oh, yeah. I just had a lot of fun. You know, it's like it's, there's a balancing act to it, for sure. And so much of the story of, of Outlaw Saints is really about how opposites coexist within each other and are actually one thing. And so that was an ongoing theme throughout that I really set myself up for as a challenge to live up to. And it felt really true, you know, coming up with these different spirits and, and, and playing with how they might function in the world and how their children might function in the world. And then setting up conflicts that would speak to that. You know, so Mateo, much like myself, Mateo just wanted to play music and ended up having to heal. Um, for me, it was I could pay the rent. For Mateo, it's because that's his destiny and that's his power. And so it's that inner conflict for him of like, I'm a musician and I'm a healer. And how do I reconcile those two things while I'm falling in love with this girl that just murdered someone? <laughs> <laughs> now, you created this universe. You create the characters. I wanted to ask, too, you've also written uh, Star Wars novels, some Star Wars comics. What is the difference between you're creating these characters? Is it a difficult transition to an already known universe and established characters? Oh, yeah. Great question. I it's really, it was, a, it was refreshing, actually, um, since I've done both. With, with Star Wars, it's a very collaborative act. Uh, comics are uh, always at the heart a collaborative act because you're working with an artist, 
And in general, writing, you know, you're working with editors, yes. But with Star Wars, particularly, I'm on a team that um, is working on an initiative called the High Republic. And we basically have a writer's room, the way they do for TV shows. You know, we're, we're story architects, and we come up with this larger um, narrative together and then go off and, and work on our projects, but they're all interconnected. And that's the beautiful thing about Star Wars across the board, even when I'm writing novels about Han Solo and Lando Calrissian, they're connected to the larger world. And that's a lot of fun, and it's really hard. So it's great to do that and then go off into my own world of San Madrigal in Brooklyn and not have to deal with anybody else. <laughs> but if somebody had told you at 12 years old, hey, you're going to wind up in a writing room, you know, creating new stories for Star Wars, your head might have exploded, right? It's still exploding to this day. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And I've been a Star Wars fan since I was three years old. I saw Return of the Jedi. It was the first movie I saw in the movie theater. Completely blew my mind. And I was a Star Wars fan ever since. You know, my first storytelling was probably playing with uh, action figures, yeah. you know, Han and, and Luke and Lando and everything. And now to be able to do that in real life is uh, life changing. Any talk of uh, any of your works, especially I think the, the, the Outlaw Saints here would be terrific for, for animation, movie, television. Any talks about mm. uh, any transition mm. like that? This would be a great animated series. Definitely. I thank you. I think so, too. Uh, it's something I have on my radar to do. Uh, there's nothing official or confirmed that I can say publicly yet, but it's definitely something that I would love to see happen. I agree with you. I think it's very alive and cinematic. Oh, you can say it here in front of tens of thousands of listeners. We won't tell. <laughs> hey, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the new book is Last Canto of the Dead. It is now available where books are sold. The author is my guest, Daniel Jose Older. And, well, this was fun. Thanks for uh, being on the show today. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And welcome back to The Big Wake Up Call. I'm Ryan Gatenby, and time for my next guest, who is an entrepreneur and author, and here to talk about the new book, Coming Full Circle, Healing Trauma Using Psychedelics. And we're going to visit with Shannon Duncan. Shannon, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you doing today? How are things where you are? Um, you know, I'm doing great. I've been doing a lot of these interviews, and it's uh, it's been a good day. It's, it's fun. Is it difficult to do one interview after another on these tours when you're trying to remember, you know, what you said before? <laughs> um, you know what? I just treat each one as a brand new experience. So I just roll with it. Well, I appreciate that. Um, can you briefly give us an overview of what Coming Full Circle is about? Yeah, you know, there is a renewed interest in psychedelics as a means to heal trauma, especially treatment-resistant trauma that hasn't been been successfully addressed through other means. Um, there are, you know, legal clinical trials. There are kind of underground uh, therapists offering these kinds of services as well. There's, there, there's different approaches to it. Um, and for people who are interested, I want I wanted to give them a resource to understand what this process really looks like, what they need to watch out for, what they need to understand, um, how to tell if somebody's actually qualified to offer this kind of service, because there's quite a few people popping up 
wanting to be psychedelic guides and they just determine for themselves that that's something they're going to offer and they're, they're pretty dangerous. Yeah. And so I give a lot of information of how to, how to tell who's qualified and what qualification even looks like. And a lot of, it's a lot of information on, you know, just the mindset you want to take into this kind of work. So you can go into it with your eyes wide open and ready to get real benefit from the process. Now, when you mentioned treatment-resistant trauma, was that your experience? Yeah, that was my experience. You know, I had uh, had some challenges in childhood for sure that uh, deeply affected my ability to have a rich and rewarding life as an adult. And um, I had I had done talk therapy. I had done uh, body-centered therapies. I had tried hypnotherapy. Um, I did my own work with psychedelics, and all of these yielded really positive results. I'm not going to say they didn't change my life in profound ways, but we never, none of those ever got to the actual core wounding, the emotional wounding. And when I was introduced to doing a professionally guided psychedelic therapeutic session, I cracked open like an egg. It was a completely different experience than any psychedelic experience I'd ever had before, even though I'd done those medicines before. Um, And I started learning about the difference of doing this professionally and, um, and under the guidance of somebody who really knows what they're doing versus maybe doing it by myself or doing it, doing it, doing it in other ways. And it's, that's when I knew that this was going to be the path forward for me to do my own deep healing. And it has been a remarkably profound experience for me. I mean, I went to college in the nineties, so I'm familiar with ecstasy. What is, is a different experience between recreationally and, and using it to heal trauma? Is it the way you're cared for afterwards? Is it a combination of that and then how you interpret that? It's, um, yeah, there's a few different, there's a, a, I I talk about this extensively in the book, the difference between what I call recreational, which is what you're describing. And in recreational experiences, you can have profound insights come to you that are deeply life-changing. I certainly have. And then there's the more expansive use, and this is most of what's in the healing space right now. And expansive use is similar to recreational in that you have this huge mind-expanding, heart-expanding experience where you can see your life and yourself from a different perspective in ways that are sometimes deeply helpful. You know, an example I use is somebody who's got issues with anger in their life and then, you know, Previously, it was always other people making them angry, but then in a psychedelic session, they all of a sudden realize, oh my gosh, I see that I'm really scared, and so I'm using anger to push people back, and that insight, that new understanding of themselves provides a profound change in their life. They're able to take that understanding into therapy and really work through their issues to have a new experience of life where anger isn't such an issue. That's the majority of the psychedelic experience. That's the majority of even in the legal clinical trials, the kind of stuff that's happening. But then there's another way where you take that massively open, expanded mind and you take it deep down inside yourself and you have a direct confrontation with yourself. And that's where the deep, true healing around treatment-resistant trauma happens. You were hardwired to experience the emotions that came up when our traumas really originally occurred. And the medicines give us an opportunity to go in and allow those to heal. We get where we are allowing ourselves to feel it and express it and finally let it go. 
and then we stop carrying it around in the present like it's still happening and it's something that happened in the past instead. That's the real power. And uh, that's the part I'm trying to bring people to be more aware of. Now, that's very powerful. What you said is having a conversation with ourselves. And and I think part of that is the goal uh, of talk therapy. But you're, you're trying to bring things out. But, yeah, I feel like there there is some introspection there. But I'm not really getting deep into, uh, wow, a self-conversation just sounds that that is is, is life changing. Yeah, it's profoundly life-changing. My life has changed in amazing ways for having gone through this process professionally and properly held by qualified support. And it's, uh, I, I talk about it a lot in the book. And so it's just, I really want people to understand what to look for so they can get the help they need. Now, talking about uh, earlier, you mentioned you want to go to someone who is officially allowed to do this. What what are some of the legal implications, and do you see that becoming more mainstream? Because it has always been curious to me about how why these things seem to be arbitrarily illegal. Are, are we seeing at some point in the future the success of this will lead to more mainstream use? Yeah, it is becoming more mainstream and, and more importantly, less taboo. You know, we're all deeply infected with the propaganda from the war on drugs and right. just say no campaigns. And oftentimes those things were so misinformed and dishonest, lumping psychedelics together with other drugs like uh, heroin or cocaine. And that's, there's no comparison between those. And so there are legal clinical trials becoming available where people can go and try to get access to get help. And there are some states like Oregon that have legal facilitation of uh, uh, mushroom experiences, psilocybin experiences. Um, I'm, they've got a ways to go, in my mind, to be truly effective for dealing with treatment-resistant trauma, deep trauma. Um, but it's a place to start. And then there's the, the market that's been there for decades, and that's the gray market where you have professionals that are highly trained in dealing with trauma, um, deeply experienced in working with psychedelics themselves that offer these sessions, but they can't do it under their normal license because it's not legal to do so. And uh, that's the way I have worked because that's what's been accessible to me. And, um, you know, there's, there's stuff to watch out for. There are knuckleheads out there trying to offer these services that are not qualified um, but I talk about that a lot in the book, so anybody who reads through it should know exactly what to look for to have qualified support and get what they need from the experience. Well, it's a powerful, honest book and highly recommended for anyone who, who's considering taking this way uh, toward mental health. The book is called Coming Full Circle, Healing Trauma Using Psychedelics. The author is my guest, Shannon Duncan. And Shannon, thank you so much for joining me today. Great conversation. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me.